uh, Lance Calvert actually shared from 1 Corinthians 5. And I'm glad that he shared it because um, it was a, uh, a difficult passage. We talked about immorality, uh, specifically sexual immorality, uh, within the doors of the church. And when I say within the doors, I mean within the body of believers. And so Lance dealt with a very difficult passage because in our culture, sexual immorality is no longer something that makes us blush. It's something that's normal. It's become kind of commonplace. And so because of that fact, and because people are so comfortable in it, no one's ashamed of it anymore. Even inside the church, there are many who, coming out of a background without having been in church, they're unaware of the implications, they're unaware that it's sin, or if they are unaware, or it's never been dealt with, if you do deal with it, it causes quite a stir. And so what the Lord does is He uses the pen of the Apostle Paul to speak to the Corinthian church who had the same issue. Uh, sexual immorality is not a new thing. It's not something that just came up since the 50s and 60s, like we would like to think it was. But it was actually commonplace, even in the time of the, the Roman um, Empire, and particularly in places like Corinth, where sexual immorality was part of the fabric of society. Now, if that is part of the fabric of society, it's going to fray. There's going to be a lot of bad things going on other than that as well. But what we find in the book of Corinthians is that Paul had to deal with this. He didn't shy away from it. He didn't act like it was okay. He dealt with it very specifically. And in this particular case, it was even something that pagans weren't practicing. There was a man within the church that was with his father's mother, excuse me, not his father's mother, his father's wife. He was sexually in contact with her. And so Paul says, hey, this person is in the church. You need to deal with it. You need to judge them. Now, this isn't the judgment that is a, an eternal judgment. It is judgment to, to make a call and say, hey, this is wrong. You need to repent. And if they don't repent, he says, put them out of the church because they need to know that what they're doing, their sin, not only separates them from God, but in a very practical way, separates them from the fellowship with the church. And this is difficult because... If that happens, then there are other people that that person knows, and sometimes they take people with them out of the church. But what Paul says is purity is more important than the amount of people in the church. Because when the church is pure, there comes power. When there's impurity, when there's sin in the camp, there's, there's a blemish. Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. And so God deals very harshly with that particular sin. But he says in that chapter... The idea is not to, to turn him over to Satan so that Satan would give him all he wants because sometimes we, we want sin so bad even though as Christians and the Lord says, you know what? You want that sin? You can have it, but you can't have me. And then he just lets that sin overwhelm them. He gives them in to the, just the, the lie that, that that will fulfill them and when they completely are swallowed up by it, the hopes is that they'll come back and go, Lord, I need you. Please free me from the bondage that this particular appetite and habit has, has given me. I'm, I'm now tied down to it. I can't quit on my own. And I love this because the heart of the Lord is that we would repent and come back. Just like the prodigal son. You know, what did the father do? The son said, hey, I want my inheritance. And he, he took it. And, and the father said, here you go. And, and the son left. He lived it up. He spent all the money. And, and he got into all kinds of trouble and he got into a spot where eventually because he had lived so loosely, he was out of money and he was actually working with pig farmers. 
And while he was working with pig farmers, he didn't have anything to eat, so he would eat the pig's food. And in the middle of his muck and mire experience, he was in a spot and he said, you know, what am I doing? My father loves me. If I go back to him, at least I can be one of his servants and I'll eat way better than this. So he went back to his father. And when he went to it back to his father, what did his father do? He didn't say, you fool, what'd you do with your inheritance? He said, oh, I'm so glad my son's home. And that story is not about the son, it's about the father, the love of that father desiring for his son to come home and experience the joy and the relationship with him. And so in the same way, that's the father's heart for this man who is immorality. Because many times we just want to leave people alone so they don't get shook up. But the reality is, is if they hold on to their sin, they're going to wake up one day in hell. And it won't be worth the, the just small amount of time of discomfort if you just would have been confronted in his sin. And so he says there in verse 9 of chapter 5, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. He says, don't keep company with them. But he makes, a, he makes a distinction here. He says in verse 10, Yet I certainly did not mean, don't keep company with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or the extortioners, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He says, don't keep company with those who are sexually immoral. He says, I'm not talking about everybody in the world that doesn't know the Lord. I'm talking about people in the church. They need to know the difference between light and darkness. And so when you say, I won't have company with you, they're going to go, hopefully, they'll go, why not? What's wrong? Sin separates us from God. So God says, hey, let their sin separate them from you so that they can know they're in a wrong spot. He says, but I'm not talking about those who are in the world that do these things because then you just have to leave the world completely. The world is full of sin. It's full of sinful people. He says, I'm not talking about that. Verse 11 but now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. And that's the, that's the distinction. He said, don't keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, who is covetous, who is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Don't have them over for dinner. They need to know that their sin is grievous to the Lord. And so it's grievous to you too. But then he says in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. In other words, God judges those who are outside. So put them outside. Show them, hey, the lifestyle that you're living. And this isn't talking about one mess up. This is talking about a constant living in that sin. No repentance, no change. Someone who continues in it. He says, put them outside so that they can be judged like an outsider. So then we get to this week, in chapter 6, and there's another issue that Paul's going to deal with. Apparently there was someone in the church who had a problem with someone else in the church, and rather than taking it to the pastor or the leaders in the church, he's dragging him to the courts and suing him. Now, this is kind of a common thing these days. I mean, we have TV shows. You've got Judge Judy... Uh, is it Judge Brown? Like all day long, if you're ever at home during the day and you flip on the TV, there's going to be some judging shows. Because, I mean, we're entertained by this. I mean, you can't look away. It's like a train wreck. Some of the things that, that people are going through. And it's just like, how in the world? 
But this isn't like just anybody. These are people who are believers. They're supposed to be born again Christians. And so they've been justified by the Lord. They've been forgiven of their sins. And so Paul says a very strong phrase here. He says, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. He says, why would you take someone who is a brother or a sister in Christ and drag them before secular courts? Now, you got to realize that this is more than just them taking them to court in a closed courtroom where the only people there are those who are there to witness the trial. See, in those days, just like in our days, they were entertained by these trials. They were kind of entertaining. So they were like, you know what? Let's have them out in the middle of the city. And they would have these court cases and the judges would sit on what they called a bema seat of judgment, kind of like Pontius Pilate did in the, in the gospel accounts where Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate. Crowds gathered to see what was going to take place. It was a show. They wanted to be entertained. And so for two Christians having a little squabble, whether it was a big or a little one, they would drag each other, not physically, but they'd say, I'm taking you to court. You wronged me. And they would take him out into the, the public center. And so Paul's saying, dare any of you drag each other to your shame into public to argue in public. He's not saying here that you should never have disagreements with each other. You know as well as I do that brothers and sisters, because they're around each other, they don't always get along. That's not uncommon. But how we deal with those disagreements, those disputes, those fights should be different because we're Christians. So Paul says, dare any of you take it out to air out your dirty laundry in public. It's like when you go to the grocery store and there's a couple there and they're just calling each other's names and they're going at it. And you're like, don't you guys have a place to argue at home? But they're airing their dirty laundry. They're dishonoring one another. And so he says there, verse two, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He says in verse 3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more are things that pertain to this life? So Paul, he looks at it. He looks at the way they're handling their arguments. Based, he goes, well, you must not know what God's preparing you for. You must not know who you really are in Christ. If you're arguing in this way, if you're dragging each other before secular judges, perhaps it's because of a misunderstanding. You, you have some, there must be some information that you're lacking. And so he tells them two things about themselves as Christians. He says, not only are you called to a, a living hope in your faith in Jesus, but you've also been called to a greater purpose than at this point you can even gather or imagine. He says here in verse 2, do you not know? And he says this several times in the first 11 verses of this chapter. Do you not know? Are you not aware of the fact that you're going to, with all the saints, judge the world? And I'm like, wow, we're going to judge the world. We're going to sit with Christ in judgment over the enemies of God. And he's referring to the millennial reign. When Jesus comes back, he obviously he, he sets up a physical kingdom, and that's a study for a whole nother day. There's a time of the rapture. There's a time where Jesus will set up a practical reign in Jerusalem. He'll have a throne there and he'll judge the nations as a 
practical king. He'll judge in righteousness. But apparently there's a, a, for all believers, we will be sitting in judgment over the nations with him. Kind of like in the early days of the nation of Israel where there were 12 tribes and he appointed judges over those tribes because remember Moses was sitting in judgment over them and people would have disagreements. They'd come before Moses and he would deal with their disagreements and he would say, you do this and you do this. Well, his father-in-law came along and he goes, you sit here from dawn to dusk and you're judging all day long. This shouldn't be so. There needs to be other people that can help you with this task because you don't even have time to spend with the Lord. And so he appointed judges over these different areas and there were other people who would do the same thing. And so that's a type of what it will be like in the millennial kingdom. We're going to be a part of this thousand year reign where we actually sit in judgment over the nations of the earth with Christ. So that blows my mind. And that's kind of crazy. You know, I, I don't know that I'm worthy to be a judge. But what he's saying here is the least of the saints, the one who knows the least about the Lord, who has been justified the, by the blood of Christ, he is way more qualified to sit in judgment over Christian disputes than a secular judge who doesn't understand justification by faith. Someone who's not been born again, and someone who doesn't trust in the blood of Jesus to save them. He's saying the least of you is more qualified to be a judge over the saints than the greatest judge in all the world. I love that. So he says another thing in verse 3. He says, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Now, I read this and I'm going, I don't know anything about angels. I mean, scripture tells us some things about angels, but how am I supposed to judge over angels? Haven't they already been judged? But he, he just says it. He says, don't you know that you're going to be judges over angels? How much more, if you can judge over these complicated matters that are behind the scenes that we can't even see at this point, how much more things that pertain to this life, things that pertain to the things that we live in right now that we are aware of. So in verse 4 he says, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? Now, this actually very rarely happens in the church, but it's something that God has set forth. It's an opportunity for people to work out their differences. And one of the ways that he does that, the Lord designs the church to do that, is he gives us elders and leaders in the church who can actually be apart from the situation, who can listen to both sides, and who can make a judgment call. Hey, maybe this is a way that you guys can, you know, uh, reconstitute your relationship based on these, two, these changes, whatever the judgment might be. God's given us that ability within the church. He's given us truth. In 1 Peter, he actually says God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness in the person of Christ Jesus, in the word of God. And so if he's given us all things that pertain to this life, he's given us the ability to judge between each other. And not so much the judgment that deals with salvation or going to hell, the judgment that deals with just everyday disputes. And we have them. That's the reality. And so Paul says here, it's to your shame. 
Are there not even people in your church who can sit in the middle of these conversations and play the mediator? And, and it's, it is to their shame because they were puffed up in pride as a church. They had all the spiritual gifts that are listed in the, the text of Scripture. And yet, they couldn't deal with simple disputes and problems amongst one another. He says, verse 5, I say this to your shame. And then in verse 6, he says, But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Here's the deal. The law of the land that God has given us through different legislators and everything else, when they sit down in a court of law, what do they judge? If someone ever, a lawyer or uh, a litigator, ever brings up intentions, they give a, uh, what do they call it? Objection. They say, I object based on the fact that this person is calling into question the intentions of, of the person that's prosecuting. See, the law of the land that we have cannot judge intentions. It can only judge actions. But the law of the Lord judges our hearts. It judges our intentions. The word of God cuts down. Uh, It it goes to the very joint and marrow. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, because I can't think of it right now. I'm going to turn there. I need one of those tab Bibles. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the word of God can judge our intentions. And so the Lord wants to get past the actions. He wants to get to the source of the issue. And we, when we judge things, even present day judges, they never go to the intentions. They only judge the actions. And that's all they can do. But brother is going to law against brother And they're doing this before unbelievers. Well, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with going to a judge with a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, but going before an unbeliever? Well, think about it in this case. They're going in the center of the city. And their testimony is, is that our God is big enough to save us, but he's not big enough to help us to get along. Does that make sense? God can save us. He's eternally set us in place so that we can go to heaven, and yet he's not big enough to help us get along. That's not a very big God, is it? And so what the Lord is showing us through here is it's not just about the dispute that the two people are having. It's also about the testimony of the Lord that it shows through how we deal with one another. And sometimes, just sometimes, maybe this is me and not you, we get so upset about our rights or our Uh, what we deserve versus what the other person deserves. And so we will fight to the death to deal with somebody that we have a problem with. And what it does is it actually brings shame to the name of the Lord because uh, there's a story by a man by the name of H.A. Ironside. He tells a story of a man. He he went to church when he was eight years old. 
He remembers this instance where there was a heated debate going on within the church between one man and a group of people. And this man was upset. And I don't know if it was about the carpet. I don't know if it was about him not getting to be in a certain position or whatever it was. I don't know. But what he says he does remember is that at one point the man that was upset got so angry that he stopped everybody and said, listen to me. The only, I don't care what the rest of you do. I just want my rights. I want my rights. And the room got quiet because the man had said what he was really wanting. He wanted his rights. And so there was an older gentleman sitting in the corner who spoke up. And this is what H.A. Ironside said. He said he never forgot how one man in the room responded to this man who was demanding for his rights. This man spoke up. And he had a Scottish accent. And I can't do that. He says, when Jesus came to us, he didn't come for his rights. He came for our wrongs, and he got them. All of them, and he took them for you and I. In other words, Jesus never cried for his rights. He came to get our wrongs to save us. And after a few moments of stunned silence and contemplation, the man who was once demanding his rights stopped. He thought about it, and he said, you're right, brother. Whatever you all decide to do is good with me. You see, he decided that his rights were not worth the upset, the pain, the arguments, the division that he was causing in order to get them. They were a black spot on the untarnished garment of Jesus Christ in the church that he died to purchase and to cleanse and to forgive. How important are our rights to us? Are they more important than the glory of the Lord? And that's the question. That's the thing that Paul's pointing out here. Maybe we don't totally understand what Jesus has done for us if we're unwilling to forgive those who are in the body of Christ. So Paul's question to this group, are you really what you think you are? The way that you handle disputes might be an indicator that you're not really where you think you need to be. So in verse 8, he continues. He says, well, in verse 7, he says, Now therefore, it is an already an utter failure for you that you... Now let me start over. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. He says, why do you not rather accept being wronged? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. He says, you guys are so upset or this individual is so upset about the person that wronged him, that in order to deal with that, he wrongs him in return. Those who reviled him, he reviles them back. Those who mocked him or did something wrongly to him, even if he did something wrong, returning wrong for wrong is not okay. He says, but that's what you're doing. So in verse 8, he says, No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, And you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? If you're cheating your brother, if you're finding some way to sue him, he says, don't you know that you're doing the same thing that he did to you? And he says this, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, 
nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the kicker, verse 11. And such were some of you. He says, don't you realize that if they've done something to you that's unrighteous, that that's where you started too? You weren't just sinning against a person, you were sinning against God. And what did God do for you? He forgave you. He paid the price for your sin. And he washed you. He cleansed you. He says that in verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of our God. And so he says there, he says, you didn't deserve to be forgiven when you were forgiven. Your debt was so heavy and God forgave you anyway because you came to him by repentance and faith. So I want to turn to an example of this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Because this is the same thing that Jesus was trying to teach the disciples. You'll remember the passage because it's when Jesus came, or uh, Peter came to Jesus and he, he, he asked him a question. He said, he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? Notice he says, my brother. He doesn't say, how often shall unbelievers or people that aren't your disciples sin against me? He says, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And of course, Peter at this time, he, go, he thinks he's doing the spiritual thing. He goes, like seven times, right? That's a pretty holy number. It's a number of completion. You know, that the week has seven days. So, I mean, that's perfection. Seven times, that's pretty spiritual, right? And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times. And of course, Peter's going, okay, well then like three, right? You know, only three. He says, no, he says up to 70 times seven. There's actually a song that that goes like that. It says 70 times seven, talking about the the number. How many times should I forgive them? Now they're not sitting there going, okay, get out your iPhone and turn on calculator app. 70 times. Well, I've already forgiven them like a hundred times. I'm almost done. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, wow, that's more fingers than I have. How am I supposed to keep up with that? And what Jesus is saying, you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to keep a record of wrongs. You're supposed to love them like Jesus loved you. Showing that you recognize how much God loves you, you practice that on others. So he says to him, I say up to 70 times seven. Therefore, and he gives a parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold. And not only he, but his wife and children and all that he had. Imagine if you owed somebody money and they said, you know what, you can't pay your debt, so I'm going to sell you as a slave and your wife and your children and why don't you go ahead and give me the deeds to all the stuff you own or owe on, you know, or whatever. And I'm going to sell that stuff too. And whatever I make from that, I'll just take that as your payment. Just all of you, that's all. And then you'll be free of your debt. Oh my gosh. That's, that's worse than bankruptcy. I don't even have a place to go after that. So he's in a pretty bad spot. And then he says there, verse 26, the servant therefore fell down before him begging, and he said, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Verse 27, then the master of that servant was moved 
with compassion. This word compassion means mercy. Mercy is just having compassion on, on someone and then moving to action. He released him and he forgave him the debt, all of it. He was going to take him, all his family, all his stuff and sell him. And the man humbled himself. He bowed down and he said, please just have patience with me and I'll pay it all back. Now this money is not going to get paid back for a long time. And the man says, rather than you doing that, why don't I just forgive you the debt? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if the amount of money that you owe on the biggest thing you owe money on, somebody just said, you know what? It's paid for. I forgive it. I would be running in the streets singing that person's praises because that's a lot of the reason why we have to do what we do is because we're paying for the stuff that we're trying to own, right? We're a slave to our debt. And then, so I'm sorry I'm belaboring it, but I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of the person that has this debt. If you've ever been forgiven a debt, it's pretty stinking exciting. It's like somebody taking a 100-pound backpack off off your back and you're like, I don't have to carry it anymore. So then he says, verse 28, But that servant went out, and he found his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, I'm not big on the whole money thing. I don't know how much a talent is versus how much a denarii is. But the idea is one guy owed plenty, and the other guy owed like a little bit in comparison. And so he went out to his servant, his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him. He took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. Give it to me. I picture like a loan shark. You know, you owe me. Grabbing him by the throat. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And he would not. But he went and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved They came and told their master all that he had done. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. I had compassion on you. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and he delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Now here's here's where it kind of gets a grip on you. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Heavenly Father who art in heaven, excuse me, our heavenly Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day our daily bread. Excuse me. Forgive us this day our trespasses. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we, like during the time that we forgive those who trespass against us. There's a condition on our forgiveness. Even though we can't earn forgiveness, it's almost like the Lord saying, you prove that you've been forgiven by the way that you forgive. You receive forgiveness when you forgive others. And so one of the things we need to really keep a cap on we need to really keep an eye on in our hearts is how willing are we to forgive those who have sinned against us, who have trespassed what we think is okay. 
Are we willing to forgive them? And if we're not, is it proving that we really don't understand what we've been forgiven? Anybody that owes us anything, it's like the hundred denarii versus the thousands of talents. It's the five bucks versus the billion dollars. Now, nobody's ever owed us a billion dollars. But if we could quantify, which we can't, our debt to the Lord for sinning against his law, it's like a billion dollars. It's something that we can't even imagine obtaining. We can't pay it back. And the Lord pays it back for us because he's good and merciful, not because we deserve it. And then as a result, we get to be Jesus to others. We get to forgive others of their five bucks. And then we get to act like we did just as good as he did. But the reality is, is we show that we worship God by the way we forgive. We show mercy. And Paul's saying that. You guys, the way that you're suing each other and arguing and disputing in public, it brings shame to the name of the Lord. And it shows them that we're really no different than them, except we do something different on Sunday morning. So let me ask you, how are you doing at forgiving? Maybe you're not dragging anybody to court, but maybe you've got some bitterness or some unforgiveness in your heart. Maybe you're unwilling to forgive somebody five bucks when you've been forgiven of a billion. You know, but where is that in your heart? Where are you at? Um, and I love this because, you know, I've, I've talked a lot during our study in 1 Corinthians about all the problems in the Corinthian church. But what I love about problems that spike up in the church is that they, they really do. They cause us to dig deeper. Where's our trust really in? Is our trust in somebody doing just the right stuff? Or is our trust in the Lord that he's faithful? You know, this problem caused them to look at what they'd really been forgiven because they were suing each other. And while I hate to see that, I do love that Paul turns it around. And he says, let's look at the example of the one we follow. And then he says, are we really following the Lord? Are we really portraying his love for the world? Because he says, if you're not forgiving, it might prove, number one, that you're being disobedient to the Lord. Or it might also prove that you've never been truly forgiven. Because every gathering, there's always somebody that's not really experienced the grace of God to the point of salvation. And so he's also saying, he says, of such were some of you. <laughs> I wonder if there was another some in there that they still were. You know, they were still in their sins and trespasses. Anyway, let's, let's close there. Father, we thank you.